0: Hello and welcome to Phenomena. I'm host Elliot Salandi-Brown. Phenomena is a podcast by Red Associates, a strategy consultancy rooted in the social sciences. I wanna begin today's podcast with a little story. It's a story that's timely in a way. It's about a presidential election, albeit one from almost a century ago. The main character in this story, so to speak, is a magazine. Literary Digest was beloved by readers for over 40 years. Founded in 1890, the Literary Digest also had a claim to fame. In every presidential election since 1916, Literary Digest had conducted a poll, and that poll had accurately predicted the next US president. Five times in a row, the magazine's poll got it right. Then, in 1936, Literary Digest conducted its sixth poll, and it came up with what the Digest believed was the likely winner. By a landslide. The Digest predicted the next U.S. president would be... Kansas Governor Alfred Langdon. His opponent, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he didn't stand a chance. Of course, we know what happened. FDR won re-election and by a landslide. 523 electoral college votes to Alfred Langdon's eight. The Literary Digest was so discredited by its poll that the magazine folded just two years later. So, how did Literary Digest get it so wrong? To get the answer, I turned to my colleague, David Sachs, who brought this story to my attention. David, what went wrong?
1: Uh, well, Elliot, I discovered this story when I was reading about something called selection bias, uh, which is a concept from the social sciences. When the Literary Digest conducted its poll, it queried its own readers. It also turned to lists of car owners and telephone owners. But see, that skewed the data sample. Because the people who subscribed to the Digest or who owned cars or phones, well, back in 1936, such people were wealthier than the average American. The skewed sample just didn't give a representative picture of reality. And Roosevelt won.
0: And why were you reading up on selection bias, David?
1: This actually came up For a study i was conducting recently at red
0: a study on polling
1: no actually it was a study on conspiracy
0: theories conspiracy theories
1: our client was concerned with the spread of false conspiracy theories online so my team and i we went all over the u.s to meet with conspiracy theorists we met with people who believe that the government is poisoning tap water that the towers fell on 9-11 due to a controlled demolition and that ufos routinely land on earth Our goal was just to learn more about these conspiracy theorists to better understand how they come to believe what they believe.
0: Sounds fascinating, but what does that have to do with selection bias? So I got to thinking
1: about selection bias when I met this guy named Mick West.
2: This photo looks like a pretty good shot of some uh, UFOs up here in the sky.
1: So this is one of Mick West's many YouTube videos. He's pulled up an image of something that looks like a UFO here and he's mousing over it. And then this weird thing over here. Mm, So
0: Mick is a conspiracy theorist.
1: No, actually, he's kind of the opposite.
2: But it's actually just uh, a reflection of these lights down here. You can kind of see that with this little V-shape here. Matches this little V-shape down here. See, Mick West
1: is a debunker.
0: A debunker? What's that?
1: So he goes online and he debunks conspiracy theories. He's got like dozens of these videos online and an entire web
2: forum called Metabunk. Hi, this is Mick West of metabunk.org, and this video is debunking 9-11 microsphere myths.
1: A microsphere, I've now learned, is a microscopic particle. Mick is a retired programmer, and a lot of his videos can get pretty technical. And Mick actually goes further than just making these videos. See, conspiracy theorists then see the videos, and some of them get angry about them, and then they start chatting up Mick online. And then Mick interviews
2: them on his own podcast, Tales from the Rabbit Hole. Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Ian. Ian is very interested in the UFO phenomenon. My guest today is Adab. Adab is a retired 9-11 truth activist. My guest today is Jeff. I don't know very much about him other than that he was talking about Flat Earth. Mick has
1: probably interviewed dozens of conspiracy theorists by now. His goal is ultimately to persuade them to
0: change their minds. Wow. But again, David, I have to ask, what does this have to do with selection bias? So Mick recently worked with us on this
1: study on conspiracy theories. And after the study was over, I interviewed him in the studio. And one of the first questions I asked him was, why did you work with us to begin with?
2: I thought what you're doing sounded very interesting, like kind of this very deep study of a culture, like kind of immersing oneself in a culture and talking to lots of people within that culture, uh, which is you know something that I do, but in a way you know the way I do it, it's almost like incidental. Like I get to talk to people because I, I raise these issues, and uh, then people come across my articles and then they contact me. So I really wanted to know what you were about and you know especially what your your results would be from uh, from talking to a large number of people.
1: In other words, Mix acknowledging that even though he's spoken to many conspiracy theorists, he still has something of a selection bias. He's mostly been talking to people he meets through his website, people who have already engaged with some of his fairly technical content. Whereas Red was getting access to a different set of people.
2: The people you seem to be talking to seem to be people who perhaps wouldn't talk to me. You know, in the sample of people that I talk to, they were kind of filtered out. And so you, because you are perhaps a, a more neutral third party, we're able to have access to people that I wouldn't be able to talk to because they, they for some reason, they almost live in a very different world to me and I don't get to access that, uh, that type of person.
1: Mick realized if his goal is to change as many minds as possible, well, he has to overcome his selection bias. He has to meet other types of conspiracy theorists, the kind that he wouldn't organically meet through his website. Okay, so I promise we'll get back to Mick West and his encounter with selection bias soon. But before we do that, we have to take a little detour. I have to introduce you to this other guy I met recently in his apartment in Brooklyn. Is this... is this, this on? He also has a British accent, so don't get confused by that. What, what do you want to be called in this podcast, first of all, if you'd rather not go oh, by? my name? Real name. Yeah. Oh, Thomas Joseph. He prefers to use a pseudonym. Joseph. Who am I?
3: Well, listen, I'm just a guy, so I'm not a scientist, so I'm just a guy.
1: Tom is... Well, he's one of those people Mick is talking about, the sort of person that Mick just doesn't get to speak to. Tom has been living in New York for 20 years. He works in nightlife. And I asked Tom what made him fall in love with New York, and he said it was the weirdness of the people.
3: I remember just walking down the street with a friend of mine, and there was this guy. He had this, like, bunny outfit these big bunny ears and we walked past him and we just carried on talking and she was like "Oh, hold hold on a minute are we just going to acknowledge that this bunny guy like, like yeah yeah
0: whatever it was just just new york he sounds like my kind of guy yes
1: but you're pretty different in fact tom says he's always felt a little different
0: i always felt
3: that stuff was a little wrong that stuff was a bit off so i just had a feeling
1: see tom is a conspiracy theorist like it's a central feature of his identity and he's been that way for almost as long as he's been in New York. He's been that way since, well... Let's talk about September 11th, 2001. What yeah. do you remember from that day? I remember
3: waking up to a show on WBAI.
2: There is smoke coming from the north face of the World Trade Center tower.
3: And then that's when it started. You know, I think I woke up and they were talking about the, the, they were talking about the first one and then the second one got hit while I was listening to it. And then... Um, You know, I got together with some friends. I got together with one friend who went, tried to give blood, but there was like a massive, massive line. Like, everyone in New York was trying to give blood. It was probably the day after 9-11, but I remember sitting on the couch and my roommate's girlfriend was sitting next to me and we were just watching George Bush.
2: The only way to defeat terrorism as
3: a threat to our way of life is to stop it and destroy it where it grows. I remember watching him and then I just said, and I think it was quite innocent. I wasn't even thinking like conspiracy theorists, but I remember him talking. I remember like his approval ratings had been going up and I was just turned around to my roommate's girlfriend and I said, uh, you know, the more you think about it, the more like this whole 9-11 thing has worked out really well for George Bush. Immediately she had an emotional reaction, kind of shouted at me a little bit hostile. I can't believe that. You would suggest that our government was responsible for, you know, basically saying, I can't believe that you believe this conspiracy theory. I hadn't even really thought of that conspiracy theory at that point. And I think what she she said to me had the opposite effect on me, that I just went straight to my bedroom and Google was a new thing then. And I I went on the Google and I I just Googled Osama bin Laden CIA and... And then all this stuff came up, a whole world of conspiracy theory stuff just like it presented itself to me. Just a whole rabbit hole just opened in front of me.
1: And then how long does it take for you to become a sort of full-blown 9-11 conspiracy
3: theorist? Uh, probably about 10, 15 minutes. No, it was right away. It was like the the, the volume of information available on that subject was mind-blowing but i remember right away it had me right away i was like this is wow
1: tom began visiting websites that suggested that osama bin laden was or had been secretly employed by the cia a whole alternate universe online began to open up for tom and he admits himself that the internet can become a tool for selection bias in a way how easy it can be to enter a kind of filter bubble that only reinforces a certain worldview. Now, that said, Tom found a lot of the 9-11 conspiracy theories he read to be credible. Eighteen years later, he still finds them credible.
0: So, David, tell me, how common are views like Tom's?
1: About half of Americans actually believe some conspiracy theory, according to 2014 research out of the University of Chicago, and 19% of Americans believe in a 9-11 conspiracy theory. Wow. But the more I got to know conspiracy theorists, I came to understand why they believe what they believe. So, for Tom, at least, it seems to come out of this deep need for the world to make sense. And the world just makes more sense to him if he can imagine some nefarious actors pulling the strings at the top. He explains this feeling by talking about a sci fi movie that I had never heard of.
3: Have you ever seen that film, They Live? No. Okay. Well, what it is, it's like the world is run by these aliens, right? But they're all like, they they all look like normal humans because there's this ray going into people's brains making them think that the aliens look human. And then at one point in the movie, something happens, the ray gets destroyed and like the guy can see the President of the United States talking and it's like, and then... He turns into an alien, you know, you can see he's an alien. And then the guy just looks at it and he just laughs. He's like, yeah, I should have figured it was something like this. It's funny to me, you're like, you are know, what if that did happen? It's like, yeah, I okay, got Yeah, that makes complete sense. That explains everything. There is a sense of that, like, maybe there's a way that this all makes sense. You know, you see, there's all these problems in the world and these problems don't make sense. Like, why is all these problems happening? Can, like, when. You start switching on to this different kind of mindset. Your mind is open to these different possibilities. You're like, well, maybe this is what explains everything. Maybe this is why. Maybe this is why.
1: So, before we finally come back around to the topic of selection bias, there's one last thing I need to tell you about Tom's conspiracy theories. Tom, it turns out, is pretty fixated on something called Building Seven.
0: Hmm, and what is Building Seven?
1: So, people often forget this about 9-11, but there was actually a third building that fell that day. It caught fire during the collapses of the morning, and then fires raged through the day. And that evening around 6 p.m., it collapsed too. There were no casualties in the Building 7 collapse. The area had already been evacuated. Now, there was an investigation into the Building 7 collapse. A governmental body called the National Institute of Standards and Technology investigated it for years. In 2006, they released a report. New York City, 2001. No tall building had ever collapsed, primarily due to fire. But that's exactly what investigators believe happened to the 47-story World Trade Center Building 7 on September 11th. But for someone like Tom, he just doesn't buy it. He just can't accept the official story. So NIST was clearly aware of this problem even back in 2006 when it announced the study results. The NIST team found no evidence that explosives were involved in the collapse.
0: So what is Tom's hang-up? Why does he think there were explosives in that building?
1: I had him show me some videos of the Building 7 collapse so I could better understand his point of view.
3: There's, there's a couple of different angles. You see the, the, it goes down at the beginning and then five seconds later the whole thing comes down. And then once you get to avoid this point, it comes down uh, a free fall acceleration, like part of that descent.
1: He's hung up on how fast the building fell and how straight down it fell.
3: To my mind, it's physically impossible for a building to come straight down at that acceleration. And and then my so my question is like so it's coming down. You have got whatever's here. Is it crumbling? Did it go like this? Did it? Disintegrate? Did it move out of the way? Did it all split in pieces? What happened? Because everyone's interested. Like this is impossible. It's never happened
1: before. It's never happened since. This is impossible. That's what we're all saying. It's impossible. It never happened before. It never happened since. Please explain. But if official explanations don't do the trick for Tom, then what about unofficial ones? What about people like Mick West? Have you heard of something called MetaBunk?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I heard about it before we talked about Mick West but I would never pay much attention to it.
1: I want to better understand why Metabunk doesn't hold Tom's attention, why it doesn't help things make sense for him in that way that he craves. So we go to his computer. Okay, so let's have a look. So So here we are on Metabunk, which is Mick's site. Tom navigates to a forum thread related to 9-11. A conspiracy theorist has posted something and Mick has chimed in with a link to debunk it. So this guy is saying this thing, He's like, look at
3: this steel. this can't happen from fire, which is totally correct. And then it's, but he's saying something that's probably infection and incorrect. Here's Mick's face, so yeah. he's, he's commenting. Here. That's what I think is happening, right? He's, this is his response.
1: <laughs> so you clicked a link that, that Mick pointed to, and it's something from a like a .edu site. It's like a scientific slide deck. It's a lot of charts, a lot of graphs.
3: <laughs> yeah, look, what's this telling me? I don't know what that means, do you know what I mean? I don't know what this is, I don't know what that is. The
1: content found on Metabunk is just too technical for Tom.
3: Iron, iron iron-carbide equilibrium phase diagram, right? Oh.
1: He's not engaging with it. So I got a crazy idea. What are you hoping you might learn from Tom today? I just want to
2: get Tom's perspective.
1: What if I brought Tom and Mick together for a conversation? Maybe Tom could learn something about Building 7 from Mick. But just as importantly, maybe Mick could learn something about how to talk to people like Tom. Remember, Tom's the sort of conspiracy theorist he'd never organically speak with. What are the ways in which you hope that this uh, interview might overcome that selection bias that we discussed earlier and might open up uh, your understanding of conspiracy theories, which is already so deep?
2: I want to figure out like why he believes what he does. What information sources does he use? Like, Why has he not seen the stuff from Metabunk on 9-11? And why does he want to talk to me? (laughs) And if he wants to talk to me, how can I use that to, uh, you know, help get what I'm saying across to more people? And then it was time.
1: I met Tom in the studio, and we skyped in Mick. And Tom began.
3: Yeah, I probably know more about you than you know about me because you're kind of famous. But um, do you have any questions? (laughs) Do you have any questions? Yeah, Do you have any questions for me? Tell me, tell me a bit about yourself. Well, I'm originally from the UK, and yeah. um, so I've been living in New York for uh, like probably over 20 years, maybe 22 years, I think. That's
1: about conspiracy-related yeah. meet and greets start like in other California. ones with small talk. Oh,
3: I didn't realize you're in California.
1: Yeah, yeah, Tom went on right to tell right the story right. of how he went down the rabbit His hole.
3: The next day, I was watching George Bush
2: talking on the TV. And
1: the conversation was, was wide ranging until and Mick brought it back it around to the subject we agreed to focus on.
2: Build, building Seven. Like, when did you first, like, you know, hear about that as 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 evidence, and when did it become kind of convincing to you? Well, I'm sure I heard about it.
3: You know, like the the thing with the BBC reporting it twenty minutes before it oh, happened. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. That definitely piqued my interest at the time. I was like, this is crazy. Just for. Uh, I bit, yeah, I don't okay. know about this one. So what happened was the BBC, like, oh, yeah, WTC7 just fell down. They're reporting it. But in the background, WTC7 is still there. And then all the conspiracy
1: theorists are like, how are you reporting this? How did you – like, how are you reporting this before it happened? This did happen. And it is strange. But Mick is ready with an explanation.
2: Uh, yeah, she, she said that, uh, you know, it had collapsed. And she, she later, like, explained they'd been hearing all day that it was going to collapse uh because you know they they'd withdrawn the firefighters from it and they set up a perimeter and there was reports that it might collapse and so you know from my perspective it seems like an understandable mistake in the confusion of the day i'm I'm interested you know obviously you thought it was very suspicious at the time yeah is it suspicious
3: yeah but i think it's more suspicious in terms of this one anomaly after another before 9/11 9-11 and after 9-11 there's never been another case of a building coming down at freefall or close to freefall speed due to just fire right
2: uh not a tall building no they generally don't collapse from fire because people are fighting the fire and they uh, yeah <laughs> i think about 9-11 obviously it's a very extraordinary set of circumstances building seven wasn't just on fire it had previously had a building fall against it and take out all the south side windows right uh, but yes it was an extraordinary event it is an anomaly right and it seems like yeah. a pretty serious anomaly
3: so it's like I say there's one anomaly after another is like stacking up I, and I think part of it comes down to um, really just persuasion because say
1: for instance you get Tom went on to describe a video he had <laughs> seen online that had made a very right persuasive thing. case but about conspiracy theories he's
3: got the persuasion game down whether or not he has the, the right facts his persuasion is great now I would love to see someone on the establishment side doing the same thing for me.
1: So Mick takes a crack at it. He tries to explain to Tom the physics of how Building 7 could collapse so suddenly and so straight down, just from fire damage alone.
2: And once a column buckles, it's, uh, you know, you can just just imagine like something like, uh, I don't know, you take like a plastic ballpoint pen or something and you press down on the top. Uh, it's very, very strong. and uh, But if you keep pressing down, eventually at some point it's going to start to bend. And then once it's bended, be under a certain point, it's just like bam, the weight will go straight down, and that's what happened with the with the World Trade Center.
3: So okay, so let's. I like that ballpoint pen analogy. That's good, but um, but you're talking about the outside of
2: a ballpoint pen or the the inside. No, no, you're you're actually kind of talking about like a whole bunch of ballpoint pens, like right. all the ballpoint pens are the exterior columns.
1: Of course, it's complex around, stuff, inevitably, and in though Mick does an admirable right? job of trying to explain it, I can all all just cool. see. He's not quite winning Tom over. When the conversation wraps up, Tom concludes...
3: There's a series of anomalies that just persuade me to believe that that is more likely.
1: Mick begins to realize to reach someone like Tom, he's going to need a different approach.
2: So what would it take for you to not believe, then? How, how could that be resolved? I think, like what we, I think it would be a, like a physical
3: experiment in someone's back garden where they show us like how this buckling could occur... You know, even if it's a small section of the building and you pl- apply a weight to the top and you put the fire, and then you know you, you heat it up to the same temperature and like a series of columns mm-hmm. and you show them buckling and you show the thing coming down. or just a visual representation, a real world experiment, would be very persuasive. and I'm not saying that would necessarily prove anything right. either way. But to me, when it comes to and really, I guess the, the thrust of my argument is about persuasion, because I'm here to be persuaded right. I'm a man on the street, I'm not a man of science, and right now, like as, as far as the arguments are concerned, the conspiracy theorists have, to my mind, the most persuasive case. So, But that experiment would help to shift, to shift it the other way.
1: This is the crux of Tom's argument to Mick. He's saying, hey, for people like me, a highly technical explanation just isn't going to hold my attention. For people like me, show me something physical, simple and clear, and then you might change my mind. The interview concluded... Um, Mick, it was really nice to meet you. Yeah, no, it's great. Yeah, thank you. I checked in quickly with Tom.
3: It was very interesting to try out my ideas, you know, with him. After 18 years, you know, I I would have expected to to have that conversation with people. But, you know, but there's not many people I think you can have that discussion with.
1: And then I called up Mick. Naturally, I wanted to know, what had he learned from speaking with a new kind of conspiracy theorist?
2: The most interesting thing for me was his kind of insistence on uh, perhaps getting some kind of uh, model demonstration and things like that, and how unconvinced he was by by experts. He seemed to be, uh, you know, almost just relying on his own perceptions. Uh, so it's, it's like he has to see it to believe it, but that just kind of gives me some ideas as to how I could actually approach that type of person by making these kind of more accessible demonstrations.
0: I guess the the lesson we're getting towards here is that if you really want to understand the world, you've got to acknowledge that you're often coming at it from one viewpoint. And we'd encourage any aspiring social scientist or someone who just wants to figure people out to, I think, quite consciously break through that.
1: Yeah, I think the story shows that if you're someone who wants to understand something really complicated, like Mick does, that you do need to go even further outside your comfort zone. I don't know if you feel that way about your projects, Elliot.
0: Yeah, I think companies often bring us in to help them get over their own selection bias in a way, to help see the world with fresh eyes. That was David Zacks, a senior consultant and now conspiracy theory expert at Red Associates in New York. And I'm Elliot Slandy-Brown. Phenomena is a production by Red Associates, a strategy consultancy rooted in the social sciences. This episode was produced by David Zaks and Haile Kong. Special thanks to Linda Hammers, Rebecca Park, Michael Marcuse, Brendan Muhar, and Joanna Zhang.